One of the great mysteries of the incarnation and life of Jesus that we'll never really grasp until we're with him forever is this. How, as he was born and grew up, did he come into consciousness of his God yet man, yet man and God, Christ identity? We're told in Colossians 2 that in him, God gives a full and complete expression of himself within the physical limits that he set himself. And we see him even late in his ministry, speaking to the timing of the end times, telling his disciples that there are matters of times and dates that he himself doesn't know, as Jesus says, only the Father. So, as a baby, certainly he didn't grasp his full identity. He was really and truly an infant, just like any of us. And then we're fast-forwarded to his 12th year, where he very clearly has a heightened self-perception. I mean, it would have been thought almost a blasphemy to call the temple my father's house. So somewhere in there, somewhere between innocent, unknowing infancy and the age where my son Tripp currently is, Jesus was moving toward a fuller realization of his Christhood. But again, We don't know how or when this occurred. And then from there, we're transported another 18 years to the beginning of his ministry. So, for 18 years, amidst the ups and downs, the boredoms, joys, triumphs, and tragedies of human life, the Word lives silently amongst people. He carried within himself the calling of the eternal ages— And yet he went about the business of village carpentry. Really, he did the same grind as we all do. And yet, and yet, from all we'll see of him, hear from him, experience of him in the three years of his ministry, we come to know precisely the purposes for which he came. He came, one to cause the life of God to break through to humankind, both in natural and supernatural ways and constantly. Two, he came that all of life, not just Sabbaths and high holy days, might be filled with experience of the presence of God. Three, he came that love, God to man and man to man, might be the atmosphere of all life. And of course, he came that all of this might be possible through an eternal reconciliation between God and man, man and God. Friends, these are the cornerstones of the living life work of Jesus. But I've got one more thing for us to consider today. Because can you imagine while coming into the realization of his identity and his life work, that he was also going to religious school, weekly synagogue, the temple. And can you imagine being the Christ, having those callings, and then having to watch the Pharisees, uh, scribes, Sadducees, religious elders going about their self-appointed works? At the age of 12, we're told, he astounded the teachers in the temple with the insightfulness of his, quote, understanding and his answers. Yet, for 18 more years, the 
personality of Jesus, the power of his lifetime's calling, was lived hidden from and really thus underneath the rule of the religious authorities of his day. So, as we in this episode finish our five-part look at the personality and power of Jesus, I want us to imagine four moments where his lifetime's work came into direct confrontation with the religion of the day. Because knowing who he was, knowing what he'd come to do, we get an important understanding of his personality by seeing his interactions with those who were doing what I might call the exact religious opposite. So, four quick glimpses. Imagine hearing of a transcendent yet gloriously simple teacher out in the countryside who was drawing enormous crowds and who was also purported to do the following things like um, heal every kind of physical infirmity, including uh, blindness, deafness, the inability to walk, even leprosy, and who, according to hundreds of eyewitnesses, has spiritual authority over demonic spirits. So imagine that you're hearing as a religious leader of the whole country of Israel, that you're hearing that there is someone who answers to really all of the descriptions of the Messiah and that he's alive in your day. So now you travel, let's say, from the capital, Jerusalem, out to the Galilee. You arrive. And let's imagine you're sort of winding your self-important way in and through the crowds. And there he is. Just a simple, bearded, normally cloaked man standing there. And yes, he's in fact doing the things you've been hearing about. You hear him speak. It's sort of strangely glorious. You watch someone walk up to him with some kind of an illness, and he touches them, and they are made right. You experience all of this, and then you even see someone come seemingly possessed by an evil spirit and then be set free, and then turning to your friends, the other religious leaders, you whisper to each other, I think this man is only expelling devils because he's in league with the prince of devils. Friends, imagine that. Imagine that perspective. Well, then imagine Jesus turning and looking you, you, whether you're a Pharisee, a scribe, a Sadducee, looking you in the eye. And these are his words. Any kingdom divided against itself is bound to collapse. And no town or household divided against itself can last for long. If it is Satan who is expelling Satan, then he is divided against himself. So how do you suppose that his kingdom can continue? And if I expel devils because I'm an ally of Beelzebub, what alliance do your sons make when they do the same thing? They can settle that question for you. But if... I am expelling devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has swept over you unawares. How do you suppose anyone could get into a strong man's house and steal his property unless he first tied up the strong man? But if he did that, he could ransack his whole house. My friends, In face of systematized religion and in the context of his calling to break through to all humanity, 
What is Jesus like? What is he offering? What does he want? And in face of Jesus, how could you or I ever retreat to any form of religiosity? Or imagine at another juncture, a a single curious Pharisee being, let's be honest, brave enough to step outside of the group dynamic, to encounter Jesus alone, who then invites Jesus into his house for dinner. Again, let's be reminded, every action, word and deed that Jesus is doing really seems to say that he is someone. And now you've got him sitting right there across the table from you uh, for a candlelit dinner. I mean, there he is. Do you see him? I mean, you could, in this moment, engage with him on the secrets of the scriptures, uh, the meaning of his brilliantly simple parable. You could request a deeper understanding of how he carries out all of these miracles and signs. That's what you could be doing. But, I mean, that's when you can't help but notice that he didn't go through the prescribed pre-dinner ceremonial washings. (laughs) And unfortunately, your face must betray your religious surprise, and Jesus' eyes narrow. He leans across the table. He says, You know, you Pharisees are fond of cleaning the outside of your cups and dishes, but inside yourselves you are full of greed and wickedness. Have you no sense? Don't you realize that the one who made the outside is the maker of the inside as well? If you would only make the inside clean by doing good to others, the outside things become clean as a matter of course. But alas for you, Pharisees, for you pay out your tithe of mint and rue and every little herb and lose sight of the justice and the love of God. Yet these are the things you ought to have been concerned with. It need not mean leaving the lesser duties undone. Yes, alas for you Pharisees, who love the front seats in the synagogue and having men bow down to you in public. Alas for you, for you are like unmarked graves. Men walk over your corruption without ever knowing it is there. Friends, in face of systematized religion and in the context of his calling to make all life every day the place of our experience of God. What is Jesus like? What is he offering? What does he want? And in face of Jesus, how could you or I ever retreat toward any form of religiosity? Or imagine on another day in another town, sitting in the home of a different curious Pharisee. And Jesus is eating his meal when something completely unexpected happens. A village prostitute enters in through the side of the courtyard, darts through the shadows, falls at his feet, and begins to weep loudly, to anoint his feet with precious perfume, and then to frankly worship his person. And the Pharisee, disgusted, begins thinking to himself, again, just thinking to himself this thought. If this man were really a prophet, 
She would know what kind of person this woman is, and he would be getting her out of my house. And yet, here's what Jesus says to that. And again, this is responding to just that man's thoughts. Simon, uh, there's something I would like to say to you. Very well, master, Simon returns. Say it. Simon, once upon a time, there were two men in debt to the same moneylender. One owed him uh, 50 and the other five. And since they were unable to pay, he generously canceled both of their debts. Now, which one of them do you suppose will love him more? Well, returned Simon, I suppose it would be the one who has been more generously treated. Exactly, replied Jesus. And then Jesus turns and steadies his gaze upon that woman. Simon, you can see this woman? Well, I came into your house, but you provided no water to wash my feet. (laughs) Yet she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. There was no warmth in your greeting, but she, from the moment I came in, has not stopped covering my feet with kisses. You gave me no oil for my head, but she has put perfume on my feet. That's why I tell you, Simon, that her sins, many as they are, are forgiven. For she has shown so much love. But the man who has little to be forgiven has only a little love to give. Friends, in face of systematized religion and in the context of his calling to cause love to be our human everything, what is Jesus like? What is he offering? What does he want? And in face of Jesus, how could you or I ever retreat to any form of religiosity? Or, finally, imagine, and and by the way, how fascinating is this? Imagine Jesus himself imagining a scene and then describing it for a crowd of listeners. In fact, we get to listen and to read his own imaginings. This comes from Luke 18. Jesus said to his listeners, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed like this with himself. Oh God, I do thank thee that I am not like the rest of mankind, greedy, dishonest, impure, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice every week. I give away a tenth part of all my income. (laughs) But the tax collector stood in a distant corner, scarcely daring to look up to heaven, and with a gesture of despair said, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. I assure you that he was the one who went home justified in God's sight rather than the other. For everyone who sets himself up as somebody will become a nobody. And the man who makes himself nobody will become somebody. Friends, 
in face of systematized religion and in the context of his calling to personally and forever reconcile God to man, man to God. What is Jesus like? What is he offering? What does he want? And in face of Jesus, how could you or I ever retreat to any form of religiosity? Well, if you've been listening along and sort of noticing what I've been up to, here's what I've been doing. I've been showing you and sort of describing for you religion's inevitable response to the fourfold work of Jesus, how religion will always respond to this eternal and yet out of our hands, always glorious way of such a perfect savior. Consider it. In place of natural and supernatural breakthrough, religion raises questions of theology, dogma, human understandings of spirituality. In place of an everyday life of intimacy with God, religion raises barriers of behavior, ceremony, appropriate times and places. In place of the love of God, religion delineates between the deserving and the undeserving. In place of the finished work of Jesus, religion continues its feeble attempts at self-justification, which, by the way, makes for a closed-loop logical absurdity of the highest order. So Jesus being heaven's inversion of our broken ways, saw his own callings being inverted by the arbiters of the religiosity of his day. And yet, even as they tried to divert his calling by eventually having him killed, friends, he inverted even their most evil purposes by having that evil outcome be heaven's perfect final inversion. I mean, it's like, oh, Jesus, you are so glorious. Which actually brings me to my final thought on this section, the personality and power of Jesus. In Matthew 23, during the final days before the cross, Jesus finally breaks out into what I would call his most trenchant, standalone diatribe against the religious leaders, and really against religion itself. His words in that chapter are absolutely brutal, scathing. They show us not only what he was thinking of religiosity on that day, but I think probably almost certainly what he'd been feeling against religion throughout his whole life. Matthew 23 is really Jesus's final word on the subject. But let's have some fun. Because what if we then turn those words even upside down? What if by flipping Matthew 23 on its head, we get to hear what his heart has actually invited us into. What if, by listening to the opposite of Jesus' condemnation of the religious leaders of his day, we get to hear the reality of the blessing of our own perpetual position in him? So I want you to listen, and I would love to hear from you what you think. This is Matthew 23, 2 through 36, inverted. I speak with the authority given to me by our Father. So come, do what I say, follow my way. Imitate my life, for I both preach and practice. I shoulder our yoke alongside you and share its light, easy burden. I myself have done everything to carry you through. My whole life was lived to be studied and effective. 
I made myself small and yet lived the fullest life ever. I loved to be honored within the simplest homes and out in the open air by the humble crowds. I loved to be greeted with familiarity by the least of these, even the smallest child, to have my brothers and sisters call me rabbi. I am still your rabbi yet. You need have only one teacher, and all of you are his brothers, his sisters. Let us look together to our Father, for we together have only one Father, and he is in heaven. I am the one leading you home to him. The only great one in our midst is the one who will serve all the others. Humble yourself like me, and you will find the Father's promotion. Choose to promote yourself, and alas, you will be humbled. But blessed will you be, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, simple followers of my way. I have unlocked the door of the kingdom of heaven to everyone, everywhere. You may come in yourselves and bring in all others with you. Blessed are you, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, simple followers of my way. You may seek my face every day and at every hour, and you may enjoy the fruits of my righteousness for yourselves. Blessed are you, you wide-awake followers of mine. You say, if anyone gives himself to Jesus, it means life. And if he abides in Jesus, Jesus will abide in him. Ah, you wonderful, blessed disciples of my heart. For yes, what is more important than knowing me, surrendering yourself to me, being sanctified by my presence right there within you? You say, if anyone comes to know Jesus, he may be a temple of the Holy Spirit and will be sealed by the covenant of God. What insight! What vision! What could be more important than being filled up with me than being part of the union between the Father and I? Any man, woman, or child who believes in me is believing in the Father and in the Spirit, and anyone believing in me is one becoming indwelt by me. I swear this from the throne in heaven on which I sit. Blessed are you, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, simple followers of my way. For you give of yourselves, your time, your energies, your possessions, just as you saw how I fulfilled the law, by justice, mercy, and good faith. These are the things you observed in me, and so you must do. I am your only leader, and I am right here with you. Follow me. What blessed hearts you have, you followers of my way. You let me cleanse your hearts, and now I'm at work on your whole life. Can't you see, my beloved? I first washed your heart with the blood of my cross, and now we're busy together, walking along my perfect way. Blessed are you, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, simple followers of that way. You are new creations whose inner lives are full of my spirit and all his fruits, whose outsides are like signposts pointing unto heaven. You appear to my Father 
like me, with both inner and outer selves in union, pure integrity, flawless blamelessness. Oh, what blessed hearts you have, you followers of my way. You know of the empty tomb and live as monuments of my life and say to all, we are living in the time of Jesus, for he is alive. Yes, I am alive. And you show yourselves to be mine when you live your days by my way, by my life. Go ahead then. Enjoy what my first friends did. Oh, you friends of my, uh, my joyous inner circle. Oh, how I am planning to, to teach you, to lead you, to save you every step of the way. Listen to this. I have already shown you my life and died and lived again that you might know me. And now I am amidst you in the power of my spirit. Within your hearts is that cleansing power of my innocent blood from that day to this. Yes, I tell you that all the power of my life, death, and resurrection is always yours for the taking. So go on. Take it. What do you say, my friends? Shall we go ahead and take him up on his offer? Shall we say yes to all that? Thanks so much for listening.